He was a small, lanky kid wearing big safety goggles as he was dribbling that basketball down the court for his team, uh, awkwardly dribbling that basketball, mind you, and there was less than a minute left, and his team was one point behind, and it seemed like everybody on the opposing team was about ready to swarm him and slap that ball out of his hand, but he made it through a couple of players, and then he went got past the half-court line, and then got past the three-point line, and then got past the free-throw line, and still awkwardly dribbling, weaving in and out, and then what followed had to be the most awkward, ugly, weirdest launch in the history of elementary school basketball. He hurled that ball up there, and you know what happened next? It went swish right through the hoop into the net. And, uh, and, and at that point, everybody lifted their hands in celebration. And you know what that little boy did? That small, lanky boy with uh, big safety goggles on. You know what he did? He looked at his dad in the stands. And his dad was just like this. You know, I love you. And here's the character of that boy's father, such that if he'd have missed that shot, that dad would have lifted his hands and said, I love you. Make it or miss it. His love is steadfast. His love is faithful. His love is real. Our heavenly father is a billion times more than that. Our heavenly father loves each of us as if there was only one of us to love. And when he sees us, he's not annoyed with us or irritated with us or disappointed with us. His love is full for us. And that's why we can gather here and worship today and especially on this Father's Day. And I have two passages of Scripture that I want to share with us this morning. Um, one is a proclamation, and the other is a parable that really unpacks the meaning of the proclamation. The proclamation we will read together, and it's from the book of Lamentations, chapter 3. And it's right up here on the screen. Who knew that there was good news in the book of Lamentations? We've been studying Lamentations, and... Uh, this week and next week, we're going to see this glorious news. But I want to just have us read together these three really powerful verses. And then we'll look at a parable that really unpacks the meaning of this. Let's read this together as a church family. Here we go. One, two, three. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. This is God's word. Hallelujah. Well, the parable then that I want us to consider uh, that really unpacks the meaning of this is a very familiar parable. And it's in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. And I would just have you turn there in your church Bibles. You'll find Luke chapter 15 uh, on page 875. We're going to pick it up in verse 17. Luke 15, I'll read for us verses 17 through 32. 
And this is the part of the parable after the younger son in the parable of the prodigal son has gone to the far off country and he's run out of resources and he's ready to come home. Luke 15, 17 to 32. But when he came to himself, and some of your versions say, but when he came to his senses, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is God's word. The parable of the prodigal son really should be appropriately titled the parable of the prodigal sons because the parable is really about two sons. We often focus attention on the younger son, the younger brother, the brother who went off to the faraway country and who had demanded that his father divide his inheritance. And give his portion, which is really a horrible thing to say to your father. Because inheritances are usually obtained, well, always obtained, after the death of the father. But he wants his inheritance while his father's alive. Meaning he wants his father dead. I want you to commit suicide, dad, so that I can take my inheritance and do whatever it is I want to with it. And we're just kind of like jolted 
as 21st century Americans in a democratic republic, but this story wasn't told in that context. It was a deep tribal, family, patriarchal culture, and that son insulted his father by saying that, but he took it, and he went to that far-off country, and you knew what was going to happen, and that father knew what was going to happen, and it happened. After the funds went dry, the friends went dry, and then the weather changed, and the famine came, and he began to be in need, and he found himself eating pig food. And keep in mind, this is a Hebrew culture, and he finds himself eating pig food. No wonder he came to his senses, and he came to himself, and he came home. He came home just content to be a servant, to try to pay off the debt. Oh, but his father would not have anything of that, would he? When he saw his son a long way off, he ran. Older men never ran in that culture because older men were dignified. They were patriarchs. Others ran for them, but not this dad. He ran to go get that boy. And he, that boy had prepared his speech to his father all the way back home, and his dad wasn't even going to let him give it. And some of us know that story because that story has been our story. Going off to the faraway land, wanting to live life on our terms, and, and learning that you never find in sin what you go in sin to find. And then we come home. We come home to grace. His mercies are new every morning. I mean, some of you live that story. You identify with the younger son. And in our congregation... We have those who identify with the older son who was just as lost. You see, one of the boys was lost away from home. The other boy was lost at home, lost in bitterness, lost in resentment, lost in self-righteousness, lost in anger, just as lost. We know he's lost because of how he speaks to his father once he finds out how his son received the father's mercy all these years. I've, what? I've slaved for you. Oh, is that how you see yourself? You're my son, but you see yourself as a slave? I, ident I identify with that, elder brother. Lost in my legalism. Lost in my resentment. Oh, oh, at first, the self-righteousness is like a delicious pastry. Yeah. But it went sour in my stomach. It made me sick. It made everybody around me sick. It does that. So the father came out, asked me to come back in. You see. See, our church is full of elder brothers and younger brothers. We're all here. And 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 to various degrees, you know, maybe you're a little bit, maybe you're a switch hitter, maybe you're a little bit of both, I don't know. But we're all here, and we identify with either or both of these sons. I want to challenge you that the point of the parable is not to simply stop at identifying with one of the sons. The point of the parable 
ultimately is to identify with the Father, to become more like the Father. You see, the trajectory of the parable, especially when you set it in the context of salvation history throughout the entire course of the Bible, is to move us towards that. It really is. Now, you notice at the end of the parable, it's an open-ended conclusion, isn't it? We really don't know if the elder brother came home. And so it's like Luke, the gospel writer, fixes his gaze on the reader and says, well, what about you? Are you going to come home? The party is here. The guests have arrived. The food is ready. All it's missing is you. Are you going to come? And that's why I'm saying that the trajectory of this parable is that the elder brother might come home. And when you look at the course of the narrative of the Bible and you read through the uh, book of Acts, which is part two of Luke's two-part volume, Luke-Acts, and then you read the letters of Paul and you read the whole trajectory. It's like, yes, this, this father wants this son to come home and so we might continue the parable like this. And so this son did in fact come home and he celebrated and there was a party late into the night and after the wine had been consumed and the fattened calf had been eaten and the, uh, 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 and the guests had gone home and the dishes were cleaned and uh, the, the boys and the father uh, rested soundly that next morning, that next morning, the father invited his sons to the breakfast table and looked at each of those boys in the eyes and said, I want you to know how happy I am that you're here. I want you to know how, how glad I am that, you, that we're around this table. And I want you to know that you will never lose my love. I want you to know that you'll always have shoes to wear. You'll always have my ring to wear. You'll always have my robe to wear. I want you to always know that my love is for you. For you. Now then, based on that unchanging fact... What I want you to do is to join me in the vocation of this estate. Because the purpose of this estate is to be a blessing to the community. And I want you to think like I think and speak like I speak and treat others like I treat others. And, and I want them, when they see your life, I want them to say, I know who their father is. And I don't want you to do this in order to earn my love because you've already got my love. I want you to share my love, my one-way love, from my heart through your hearts to the hearts of the community. Will you join me in this vocation of love? And those boys looked at their dad and said, yes, we will, Father. And you know what? They serve him to this day. That's, that's how I see the destination of this parable. You see, Luke 15 is more than assurance of acceptance. Luke 15 is a summons to a vocation, a call to ministry. And so we can say that the big idea of this parable is just this. God finds me to change me to make me more and more like him. That's the point of the parable. God finds me 
to change me, to make me more and more like him. We, we often read this parable uh, seeking to identify with one of the two sons, but Jesus wants us to look beyond the sons. What of the father? Why pay so much attention to these sons when it's the father who is at the center? The father is the main character. The father is the one with whom we are called to identify. Why talk so much about being like the sons when the real question is, am I interested in being like the father? It somehow feels comforting and uh, being understood to say, these sons are like me. It gives me a sense of being acknowledged. But how does it feel to say, the father is like me? Henry Nouwen has written a wonderful book on this parable called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And this parable, this is what he says, this parable is more than a call to return. It's a call to become. And it means not only returning to receive forgiveness, but becoming someone who gives forgiveness. It means not only returning to a joyful homecoming, but it means becoming the kind of person who gives others joyful homecomings. It means not only returning to a compassionate embrace, but being someone who compassionately embraces others. We often walk away from this story thinking, oh, how good and loving and caring it is of God to accept me as I am. And we sing that old hymn, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And all that's good, and, and, but we, we just kind of leave it at that. Content to remain dependent, forgiven children. We feel at ease, cooing in the baby crib of God's nursery, sucking on spiritual pacifiers, feeling understood, but never challenged to grow. And this parable summons us to get out of the crib and start standing and walking and assuming responsibilities of a spiritual parent, you see. Being a baby is a good thing while you're a baby. Huh? Speaking of babies, a couple of days ago, I had a visitor who helped me with my message, and I want you to meet her. There she is. Miss Audrey. She's 11 months old. Next Sunday, she'll be one. Yeah. She's with her favorite grandparent there. And then the next picture, she can't even speak, but she knows how to communicate that that's what she likes doing, grabbing my fingers and hoisting herself up and let's go on a march, Grandpa. And I think that's just wonderful as an 11-month-old, but not when she's 16. <laughs> she does that when she's 16. Houston, we have a problem, right? Hear these words from Hebrews 5, 12 to 14. You've been Christians a long time now, and you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things a believer must learn about the Scriptures. You're like babies who drink only milk and cannot eat solid food. And a person who is living on milk isn't very far along in the Christian life and doesn't know much about doing what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who have trained themselves to recognize the difference between right and wrong and then do what is right. 
So coming home to God means becoming more and more like God. If only the meaning of this parable was, well, we sin, but God forgives. I could easily begin to think of my sins as a fine occasion for God to show His grace. But Paul says in Romans chapter 6, he says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? No. And the challenge is to grow up. To grow up. And, and, and um, uh, how can it be possible that we would resign ourselves to the weaknesses of, and just keep hoping that God would just close his eyes to my weaknesses and let me come home, whatever I did? Dietrich Bonhoeffer properly identifies this as cheap grace. Cheap grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a Lutheran pastor who was ultimately martyred for his faith in World War II. He said, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Cheap grace is baptism without church discipline. Cheap grace is communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. Cheap grace. Luke 15, 31 says, all I have is yours. All I have is yours. So if that's true, and the father says that to the sons, then I'm an heir, meaning I'm a successor. So what is the stuff of my succession? Shouldn't it be to assume the role of a spiritual parent and begin offering what I have been offered? Or am I content to enjoy the goodies without assuming the responsibilities? God found me. Why? He found me to change me. Into what? He found me to change me in order to make me more and more like Him. That's the point here. Question. So what does it look like then to become more and more like Him? What is becoming like God our Heavenly Father? What is that like? Well, there are some features or traits that I want to explain. And the first is this, becoming like God means agreeing with who God says I am. That's the first feature. I see that in verse 31 where the father says, my child, that's a term of endearment. That's God's story. And it's a story about your life. And that brings the question, what story do you tell about your life? And you talk to yourself all day long, telling yourself stories. And so what's the narrative of those stories? You find yourself telling stories, reminding yourself that you're a struggling fraud or certain to be caught or destined to fail? Or do you have a story that just reinforces a guilty conscience? Are those the stories that you're telling yourself? Stories of I can't or I can't get a break or you wouldn't do any better if you'd been what I've been through or you can't expect much from me, I'm a victim or if it wasn't for you fill in the blank, then I'd have done better. When do you, what do you say when you talk to yourself? 
What stories are you telling yourself? Both sons came in from the field intending on their own story, a story of slavery. I'm just not going to be your son. I'm going to be a slave, and I'm going to work off my debt as if they could. And the father would have none of that. He's not going to, there's no way that's not going to happen. You're not going to be my servant because you're my son. And you're going to come home to the story that I have for you because that's a sweeter story. God's story is always better than our story. And here's what I mean by that. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 4, 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, term of endearment, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So God's story is better than our story. And and becoming more and more like him is a matter of believing what he says about me, not what others say about me and not even what I say about me, but what he says. That's one feature. There's another feature that I want to share, and it's this. Becoming like God means waiting patiently and prayerfully for others to return. You see, if you assume the responsibilities of spiritual parenthood, then you know what I mean when I say this. Because some of you have prodigals in your life, prodigal child, prodigal husband, a prodigal wife, a prodigal parent, And you know, sometimes the best thing you can do is just leave the light on. And you can't fix it. It's not your job to fix it. And when you tried to fix it, it only got worse because you then enable your prodigal, doing for your prodigal what really only your prodigal can do. You, you can't come to your prodigal senses for the prodigal. Only your prodigal can do that. But what you can do is leave the light on and wait patiently and prayerfully. And yes, this is hard because you don't know for sure if that prodigal is going to come home. You don't. It's a risk. And some don't make it home. But others do because you waited and you prayed and you left the light on. And in doing so, Something happened to you that you were praying would happen to your prodigal. And that is, in your waiting and in your dependence on your heavenly Father, you found yourself becoming more and more like Him. And that's the point of the parable. Being like God, agreeing with who God says we are in Christ, 
being like God, waiting patiently and prayerfully for others to return and leaving the light on. And then a third feature is this. Becoming like God means being prodigal with forgiveness. Prodigal. You know what the word prodigal means, don't you? See, it doesn't mean wayward. No. It means recklessly spendthrift. It means to spend until you have nothing left. Prodigal with forgiveness. Hmm. Someone once said that forgiveness is a good idea until you have someone to forgive. And Father's Day can be difficult for some of us because of fathers who have failed us. And yes, this much is true. Forgiveness doesn't happen until you can fully feel the pain that was brought to you. And it cannot end there because forgiveness refuses to hurt the one who hurt you. Forgiveness refuses to bear the grudge. Henry Nouwen, who I mentioned earlier, says this, I don't know about you, but sometimes I've said, I forgive you, but my heart is still resentful. I still wanted to hear the story that tells me that I was right after all. I still wanted to hear an explanation. I still wanted to hear apologies and excuses. I still wanted the satisfaction of receiving some praise in return, if only the praise for being so forgiving. But when you're hurt or offended, there's really only one of two responses, really. One response is this, stick it to them. Make them pay. The other response is, you pay. You feel the hurt. You cancel the debt. You forgive the offense. The father did that, forgiving his sons at a great cost to himself. I once uh, read about an immigrant rabbi just following World War II who made this astonishing statement. He said, before coming to America, I had to forgive Adolf Hitler. I did not want to bring Hitler inside me to my new country. Paul says in Romans 15, 7, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So you see, whenever we offer forgiveness, there's something bigger at stake than our glory. It's the glory of God. And if I don't pay attention to the glory of God, I'm going to inevitably default to my glory. And that's never a good thing. And that will never help me become more and more like my heavenly Father. The point of the parable. Being like God. Agreeing with who God says I am in Christ. Waiting patiently for our prodigals to return being prodigal with forgiveness, and then fourthly, sharing my life with the overlooked and forgotten. You see, we really need to zoom out from this parable and consider its original context. And that's up in verse 1 of chapter 15, when Luke says the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. These were the forgotten people. 
the overlooked people, those that the world labeled undesirable. And yet Jesus was so comfortable with them. And he made friends with those that the world had overlooked and forgotten. And that's what he wants us to do. He generously shared his life and he blessed those at whom the world would cringe. And he wants us to share and bless them as well. And isn't that why we have teams that go to the Dominican Republic and Peru? Isn't that why just this past week here in our church campus, we had that pop-up picnic, that joint venture between our family life ministry and our community outreach ministries and, and, and uh, uh, our uh, evening. And thank God the rain cleared away and the hot dogs were roasted and the snow cones were licked up. And, uh, and it was just a wonderful evening of fellowship and diversity and joy. And isn't that why we're involved also uh, in the Cradle to Career initiatives regarding kindergarten readiness, helping students that the world has forgotten, helping them and preparing them for that first year in school. And isn't that why every Friday night, 50 people gather in our Celebrate Recovery community to celebrate what God has done in overcoming our hurts and habits and hang-ups, and, and that that is the safest place in our church family. It really is. You see, this is, all of this is a part of, of becoming more and more like our Heavenly Father. And why do we go after the forgotten? Well, we were once forgotten, that's why. John White wrote, Were you a likely candidate for salvation, and yet didn't God save you? And haven't you seen other impossible brothers and sisters delivered likewise by the incredible power of the invisible God? Do you realize from whence you came? You were in the grip of hell. Demons had wrapped their chains about you. The God of this world had blinded your understanding. And yet God struck off your chains and the face of Christ illumined your soul. The damned around you are no more damned than you were. Their chains no thicker, their darkness no deeper. Nor is the power of Christ to save them one whit less. With every act of compassion to the overlooked, the Spirit testifies to our spirit. This is what the Father's children do. Becoming like God is no less than becoming like His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's why God rescued us. That's why He found us. He found us to change us, to make us more and more like him. And so Paul says in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You know, Jesus is every character in this parable. In fact, he's every character in these three parables of Luke 15, right? He is the shepherd that leaves the 99 and goes out and finds that lost sheep. And then he is the woman who, uh, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one, goes and scours the house till she finds it. And then he is the father 
who goes after both of those sons. <laughs> He's the younger brother without being a rebel. He's the elder brother without being resentful. He obeys his father, and yet this doesn't mean he's a slave. He does all the father tells him to do, and yet he remains free. He gives it all, and he has it all. The Son of God became flesh so that every lost child would come to him and become like him. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And there's just two persons there in that verse. There's Jesus and there's you. Jesus says, come to me. Don't come to anybody else but me. And he doesn't say, come hear a sermon about me. He says, come to me, my work, my person. And you come to me. You know, no one else but me. No one is put between you and Christ. Come to Jesus directly. Now, you need a mediator between you and the Father, but you do not need a mediator between you and Jesus. You come as you are, without a reference letter, without anybody to recommend you to him or plead to him or make a bridge. There's no bridge between you and Jesus. You just come to Jesus as you are. You come to him as he is. And the promise is, is that he will change you. He will give you rest. And that is the assurance of Christ himself. And there's no deception in it whatsoever. Two persons, you and Jesus. And you let everybody else vanish. It's just your face and his face. Left alone to do heavenly business together. Come. Amen.